This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. And yes, welcome to show number 000, the first edition of the BDIR podcast. Now we've done it. We've created yeah, a podcast. Another one, part of the Breaking Down Security family. Well, though, well, this podcast, I guess, should be about what the podcast is about, right? It's a good place to start, zero, zero, zero. What are we going to talk about? Why should people yeah. listen and what will we cover? Right. So uh, we'll go into a show summary right now. So we'll do um, basically news-related items, what's going on, IR-related. Uh, we've got some 401k fraud that we'd like to talk about. A North Carolina school got billed a lot of money to do some malware cleanup. And uh, we'll, we'll go over some Emotet artifacts there. That's what they had. We'll cover some site-worthy items, and, uh, which are recommendations on what kind of websites there are out there, IR-related. We'll go into a tools-worthy tools section, talk about what kind of tools fit the framework of the show, and we'll go over one of those tools and uh, or more. And then we'll talk about our topic of the day, which is what this podcast is about. First of all, the sponsors of our podcast are... Yep. Go ahead, Michael. We got to uh, thank our, our main sponsor that's going to be doing this podcast. Obviously, we have to thank ourselves in this case. So LogMD, the Log and Malicious Discovery Tool. So give it a try and discover it and see what it can do for your logging as well as helping you do malicious or malware discovery, which we'll probably cover in a podcast in the future of what we do with that. All right. And then uh, I'd like to introduce the guest that we have today. Our first guest is a regular speaker at uh, security conferences. He's also a trainer in advanced malware analysis. His name is Tyler Hudak. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Hi, mm -hmm. thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Tyler. And, uh, <laughs> and our second guest is author of three series of books on digital forensics. He's a certified SANS instructor. And most importantly, he's winner of the inaugural NetWars DEFER. Um, host of Forensics Lunch. And he's a partner at GC Partners, which is a forensics consultancy. Dave Cowan, welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me on. Woohoo. Well, let's uh, first thank our, uh, our show. This podcast is sponsored by our two guests, GC Partners. And Dave, you can tell us about what uh, you guys do. Let our listeners know how, uh, how you make a living. Sure. So uh, our main line of business is uh, we get involved when people are getting sued or suing someone and they actually need an expert witness to come actually testify to what happened, who, who stole what, who lied about what, who forged what contract or destroyed what evidence, all that kind of fun stuff. That's, that's mainly what we do. We do incident response and all the rest of that stuff, but we tend to do it as a subcontract basis because as people who do incident response know, the worst thing about incident response is doing incident response. So we like to... <laughs> we like to make sure that we can buffer it out between other work and say no when we can. Um, but that's that's what the company does. And then I'm also a SANS instructor, as you pointed out. And uh, I don't have any U.S. courses, public U.S. courses, actually, this year. But if you're listening in Singapore, Amsterdam, London, or Australia. Australia. Or, yeah, I will be coming your way this year. Down under. I love Australia, especially in the wintertime. What is there, the some kind of legal thing where you can't teach 
SANS course in your own country? What's that about? So I've been teaching SANS courses in the States for a couple of years now. Um, but this year, they're like, hey, how about we let you go out of the country? And I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try this year. Let's see how it works. And so they, the ones they offered that were really interesting were happened to just happen to be amazing, fun cities. So, you know, it just happens to work out that way. Business class, that's the one word I'll tell you when you yes. fly to Australia. Yes. And their other uh, sponsor of this show is going to be Tyler Hudak and his training. And Tyler, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing on the side and in your training and, and other areas that you want to tell sure. and share with our Sure. Listeners. So uh, I've been doing uh, training at various conferences for the last eight or nine years or so, uh, mostly uh, an introduction to malware analysis course, although I've done some other malware analysis courses. Uh, the one that I have coming up is going to, or the one that's confirmed right now is Circle City Con, which is going to be end of May in Indianapolis. I'll be teaching out there. And then I also have uh, one, uh, actually two courses on the Pluralsight training uh, website now. One is a malware analysis fundamentals course. And one is one that was actually just released today. It's a uh, mal analyzing malicious documents course. Okay, and, and explain Pluralsight a little bit to people because some of us uh, and, and the listeners may not know exactly what the makeup and how they do their uh, subscription-based training. Sure, so Pluralsight is a huge website with thousands of training videos on it. I'm only one of a couple hundred authors on pretty much every technical subject you can imagine, but uh, you go there, you pay a subscription fee uh, per month or per year, you get access to all of the training videos. Uh, so mine are, like I said, malware analysis. There's computer forensics courses on there. There's uh, secure programming. Uh, there are some other very uh, well-known authors like Troy Hunt is a big plural site author. Uh, and it's honestly, it's a great site. I, uh, I know if you have an MSDN subscription, you get uh, 30 days free or, or some amount of time free. So uh, it's definitely worth uh, checking out, I think. Uh, cool beans. All right, Brian, why don't you take us in our next segment? Newsworthy. All right, so in the news, there was, uh, well, I don't know if it was national news or whatever, but there is some 401k fraud going around. We had known about someone who this happened to. And what happened? Um, go ahead, Michael, why don't you uh, kind of explain uh, what you know about this fraud? Yeah, this I think this is brilliant, really. If you come, if you come to think about it, apparently the benefits people, right? This is your four hundred one k provider, whomever it may be, could be an IRA provider, but four hundred one ks solely for the most part allow you to take loans out against your four hundred one k. And this particular four hundred one k provider claims that the reason um, this compromise of an account and or the event that occurred here was due to the leaking of personal information, like birth date, social security numbers, et cetera, through the various breaches, Equifax being one, OPM would be another one, Anthem and, and all those others, that they are now able to go into someone's 401k account by probably logging in the first time or picking on certain providers that may not have really good verification process and actually give them enough information to make the 401k provider think you are the person that owns that account take out a loan against your 401k and have those funds mailed to the, in this case would be the, the owner of the account's actual physical address. But in the case that we investigated, we found uh, two things occurred. One, the criminals tried to have 
the address changed within the system by the employer in, and include that to also be the 401k provider. And in lieu of that working, they also put in a change of address for the U.S. Postal Service, which then would redirect the check that was mailed to the actual owner to a, another address elsewhere. Just by getting the personal information from your 401k, logging in, convincing the provider, getting into the account, seeing that there's funds, taking out a loan against it, and then going after some change of address items, um, you were able to compromise this situation. Now, the thing that was most surprising to me is the check was cut and it was mailed to the user, but fortunately got there before the change of address at his physical home occurred because he got the card that said your change of address was going through, and so the timing was a little off. Um, so other than that, I find this fascinating because uh, the 401k providers claiming it is due to the data of the breach from Equifax, and I would say there's many others that have lost enough data for uh, this to take place. This is kind of brilliant. I, I think people realize... Both Brian and I look at each other and went, oh, man, this is awesome. Because how many of us really log into your 401k, make sure our passwords are up to date? Uh, in our case, our provider recently made a, a web change, which caused us to have to go in and put in new security questions, create a different account. And so they had a significant upgrade. Uh, how many people actually log into 401k, check their passwords, check their addresses, check their loan balances, make sure everything as that seems? I would think you could compromise this, get that check mailed out, and if you get your change of addresses occurring correctly, it would take months, if not years, or at least until you prepare taxes to realize that uh, something is amiss here. Uh, and so we found that really interesting, and we want to warn people to take action, look into your 401k accounts, make sure they are as you, as you say, uh, and consider some protections, like maybe having a unique address, email address. Uh, think about like an Equifax or OPM or Anthem breach. Take your, uh, the addresses, your email addresses you all use there and say, all right, I'm going to change that to something unique because these are high-value targets. And that way, uh, if these other things like Facebooks and Yahoo's of the world get compromised, my email address that I use for those is completely different than the thing I use for my bank, my 401k, my IRA, and my financial kind of institutions for investments. And then also make those passwords very unique. I mean, this is a great example where passwords into accounts better be unique. If there's password reuse in your 401k, you could be really in, in bad shape with all the data that's available for people to verify who they are. So that's kind of the summary of the 401k fraud. Uh, we found it really interesting. We found it to the fact that it was that successful. The check was mailed. Fascinating. Uh, turned out one of the reasons it got caught was the email address they used. The uh, HR person actually changed it to the person's internal email address, and that's actually what kicked off. So kudos to that HR person. And that should probably be a process all HR people do is never update or even uh, consider updating someone's 401k or investment accounts without using their internal business email or some other verification, which we implemented after this uh, case to make sure the people that were making requests were actually those of the company. And that's that's the story. Um, has it made the news? I think it should. I think uh, this is a new area of criminal fraud that's occurring and they're blaming the breaches of, of large data. And I think a lot of it has to do with how the account is set up initially. I know I've went through a 401k setup after I quit a job, and then I had to log in and basically re-register for my 401k um, through another company. And the initial password on, my four, uh, on the 401k account was my social security number. 
not good. Next, we have a North Carolina school that got infected with um, ransomware. And basically, they hired a consultancy to come in and clean up, I don't know how many machines. Basically, they said it would take them a uh, at least 30-day effort, and it would cost them $314,000 to clean up their site. And then there was a, another contract for something like um, $800,000 for a one-year consultancy afterwards to make sure they didn't get reinfected. Yeah, and, and correction here, not ransomware, just the Emotet uh, rootkit. Ah, uh, um, yes. Emotet. So the reason this kind of sticks out to us anyway is uh, it seems an awful lot of money to clean up uh, some 20 servers and 3,000 client systems. This was awarded, again, this is the thing people need to understand about public the public space is that uh, open records allows uh, newspapers and news agencies to make requests about these kinds of events and the government agencies have to provide it as a part of open records and transparent government so some information has been available and these how these news stories get out around the school districts or government agencies so there's probably some information we definitely don't have so there's a caveat there we we don't know everything about the situation but this was a non-bid situation so they picked a, a service provider and went with them 314k I, you know i don't know about you tyler but uh how long do you think it would take you to clean up 20 servers and 3,000 client systems if you had the proper tools i think i'd do it a lot less than three hundred fourteen thousand dollars. yeah i mean the, the servers would definitely be a lot easier than you know that many clients but once you figured it out i mean you write a script and you know you should be able to get rid of it um I mean, I'll admit it's been a while since I really looked at Emotet, but I don't remember it being that uh, completely difficult to to remove. And I, when uh, I had read this article as well, and yeah, that that figure just kind of struck me as really high. Um, but I, I think it also brings up uh, another good point in that, you know, when you go a lot of I know a lot of times when uh, you go and you try to get funds for you know, protections or more tools, you know, it's always hard to justify, you know, how much money you're saving your organization by having these and being able to respond and protect systems. I think you can, anybody can point to this and say, well, here's one example that is in the news that the figures have been released. It cost them, you know, $300,000 plus however much money going forward uh, because they didn't have the adequate protections in place. Yeah, I think for this kind of money, Dave could do forensics on a handful of these systems, know everything there is to know about what this system modifications were, and then provide that information as a part of cleanup. Um, uh, this, yeah, this I mean, is at why this, this, at this point, what I would think is that when two things happened, either one, someone thought there would be a, a notification event, so they're actually doing deep dive on, on a number of these systems to see whether or not any of the other data actually got put out. Uh, but two, I mean, Typically, these are insurance-covered events, so it could be that someone decided to be more thorough. Uh, that's a good point. Insurance, not my money. Yeah, I, I, uh, both Brian and I looked at these numbers. I'm like, wait a minute, they're, they're telling me 314000 Now, we've dealt with Emotet and getting it and putting it in a lab and detonating it. it it's not that complicated. Uh, there is some uh, in-memory components of it, which, you know, like all good IR people, we just bounce them. I know Dave's going to hate this. But we just bounce the box, pull the power, and boom, we flush memory that way. 
completely kills your forensics scenarios. But, you know, if you're going, we're talking about cleanup here, or I'm talking about cleanup. But again, it's it's not that complicated of, of I wouldn't consider this remotely advanced malware in any way for manners. There's lots of artifacts. Uh, once you understand, and there's been plenty of write-ups by Trend Micro and Sophos and and McAfee and Minerva Labs on what Emotet does. And you can pretty easily clean it up. I mean, it's just a service. It uses a service. Some of the early ones did a, a scheduled task. They created a couple of unique directories to see if they were in a sandbox to do some testing there. They did use a startup folder, drop some files in Windows, System32, Syswell64. But they used the typical directories of AppData Local Temp, AppData Local in some random directory, and AppData Roaming Microsoft Windows where they dropped their binaries. Not really hard, not really complicated. Once you identified what Emotep did, you could easily clean this up. So that's why this story stuck out to us as like, wait a minute, what? And, and I do, there was mention about they didn't think they lost any data, but I'm sure a chunk of this money is into doing that kind of forensics. But uh, that really wasn't discussed in here. Uh, in, yeah, there's always the what they publicize and then what really happened. So the I think... I think one of the one of the takeaways. Well, uh, basically, they ended up paying a million dollars for a year's worth of protection from this consultancy company. At least that's what was made public. Yeah, potential contract monies, right? A lot of money. And I think that's one of the takeaways. Brian and I talked about while we brought the story up. Is what is the takeaway for a company or an educational department or a government agency or any of our listeners that may be too small that don't have all the tools you need or you think that you should have and something happens and you need to employ somebody, how much money should you spend? Um, I think they could have done an evaluation with somebody like Dave, like somebody like Tyler, myself, Brian, whomever, to get an idea and say, well, here's some recommendations. Uh, there may be some other reasons they decided to re-image everything in that they were looking to clean things up of unknown, right? Well, we don't really know what's going on in these boxes, so let's just take this opportunity to wipe the environment and start over. You know, that's a possibility. It's not in the article. We don't really know what, what the drivers are, but I think if you find yourself in this situation, you can go, obviously, to a known IR firm, the Manned Insecure Works of the Worlds and all those guys, but you can employ or get to know a security person that does know malware, like Tyler or, or myself that's employed that does side work or is full-time on this, and say, can I get some advice before I go out and spend $314,000 plus another, you know, 800 plus thousand dollars on, on a year support contract? That's kind of the takeaway here is seek some advice before you pull the, the trigger. I know when I worked for the state and we had a situation, one of the things I noticed about elected officials was sense and commonality went out the window when reputation, their personal reputation was at line. That's something to take into consideration is, you know, their reasonable actions sometimes go crazy when these kind of events are bad. That's the takeaway we have from this story. All right, the uh, the next item here is... Yeah, our website this week is uh, thisweekin4n6.com. This week in the number four, the letter N, the number six.com. I just clicked the link and my internet is kind of crappy, so it's not coming up. Uh, Michael, you want to take this one as well? Sure. Right, um, I, I kind of like the site. I put this in here, one, because Dave's going to be on the show, and we'll talk more about what this show is going to cover moving forward. But I like this because they put out bits of updates of things that are occurring. For example, came came through my RSS feed one time that they had uh, realized that we'd shipped version 1.2 of LogMD. So they're pretty wide in the forensic space. And they, they try to keep people up to date with some news bits and things like that. 
Um, and I'm, I'm often asked, you know, what kind of sites do you have? What kind of RSS feeds do you have? And so um, I like the fact that this is a summary type site and you can click on the details to get more. Um, but because we have Dave on and, and Tyler, we figured we'd do something a little more forensically because normally I'm gonna, we'll focus more at our site, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and so that was my pick for the week. And of course, we want Tyler to issue one as well and Dave as well. So what are your, uh, both of your guys' uh, site of the week that people can look into that are interesting, that you use a lot, that, that uh, you'd recommend? Tyler, you go first. Okay. The, so the one that I, I thought of is uh, Brad Duncan's malware-traffic-analysis.net. Um, if, you, if you've never been on this site, Brad has gone and done just literally, I think he has 1,300 different analyses, analyses and different analysis of malware on there. And he doesn't just go through and do a, a quick intro or a quick write-up on you know how some type of malware uh, got in, infected a uh, system. He'll go through, he has the PCAPs on there. He has the actual malware. He goes through the PCAPs. He shows, you know, this came in through a phishing email. This is what the email looks like. And it just goes through the entire thing. The reason I love this site is uh, I can point some of my junior analysts to this site and they can sit there and learn from it, um, which is great. Uh, Anybody can go to that site and learn how to do something. Brad does a great job of explaining everything. And not only that, whenever I have some new fish come in or some some new malware that I need to find a quick analysis on 90% of the time. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, you can take your PCAPs, load Wireshark, and, and start poking around with them. It, it is uh, very network-centric, so uh, for those people that really like the network side, uh, definitely a good choice. How about you, Dave? What's your uh, site-worthy pick of the week? So if you didn't... If you didn't already say This Week in Forensics, I would have totally said This Week in Forensics because it's a, a monumental effort that uh, Phil does each week kind of collecting and that just saying but like annotating you know, and putting commentary around each of the links. Uh, I, I couldn't do it when I tried to do that stuff. He, he far exceeded anybody else I know. But because you did, um, I would say it's a tie between two sites. One is DFIR.training, which is kind of this massive – collection of every forensics tool that anyone knows about from open source to commercial to resources and webcasts and all sorts of other stuff and then uh, about dfir.com which is more of the incident response side of uh, good response guides and knowledge and uh and training no those are uh, those are definitely good ones i like that all right let's go on to our next section and talk about some tools well, of course, uh, the first tool, it, c- it couldn't be possibly the first podcast unless we talked about LogMD. And, uh, of course, everybody, we have a we have a uh, free version of it, so go out there and play with it. Uh, it will help you audit your logging and auditing of a Windows-based system, but it also does malware discovery, so we look for unique artifacts within the system, full file system hashing compares, registry compares, uh, really a quick and, and dirty way to uh, do quick a triage, for lack of a better term, because Dave's on here, we'll probably talk about triage as we get into the instant response side of it. But it's a it's a really good tool to be very quick at it. Uh, we what used to take us a couple hours, we're well under an hour now. We can very quickly detonate malware, find out what launched what, see what it did, get the artifacts we need, and, and move on. Wouldn't be show zero if we didn't mention the tool that both Brian and I work on. So that's that's our tool worthy of the week choice. How about you, Dave? What's your uh, what's your choice of a tool recommendation? So 
I would probably be in trouble if I didn't mention the tool that we uh, we provide for free and sell as well, which is called Triforce. Uh, it's at gettriforce.com, and it's a file system journaling analysis tool. So it's the ability to roll back changes that have occurred across a file system to determine uh, what malware is doing or destructive software, or just users doing normal weird and crazy things. Uh, so that's that side. On the other side, I would say the thing that's getting a lot of traction that we put out that is open source is our file system events parser for uh, OS X and iOS, allowing you to see that same type of granularity, but on Macs. Ah, beautiful Mac tool. Love it. How about you, Tyler? One tool that I've been playing around with a lot is a tool called Lazy Office Analyzer. Um, if you've never used this tool, it's really great for analyzing malicious uh, Office documents. Uh, one of the ways that you can analyze documents very quickly is to load up uh, a debugger and just set breakpoints on certain uh, API calls. So uh, write file and create process and some of the HTTP related ones so that if you get a document, like a Word document that's very obfuscated or has obfuscated VBA code inside of it, de-obfuscate it, uh, you have to, all you have to do is you know, set the breakpoints and wait for Word or whatever you have to hit those breakpoints and then you can see you know, where the malware was writing to or what process it was trying to create and, and so on. Um, the problem with doing that, especially for people who are, are kind of new to malware analysis, is debuggers can be very overwhelming to them. And so Lazy Office Analyzer is this great little Python script, which just automates all of that for you. It, uh, it will take it, it will uh, automatically set the breakpoints using WinDebug. Uh, it will kind of parse it all out so you can tell it when to stop. Uh, or if you don't want it to stop, you know, you let it keep going. Um, and it just shows it to you in a very nice little format at the end. So I can you know, load up this in my sandbox. I can load up a uh, malicious Word document, let it run for about 30 seconds, and then I have all the information I need as to where it was trying to download a file or what PowerShell command it was trying to run. Mm, very good. So I'm a, I'm a big user of Office Mouse Scanner. That's, that's, uh, this is obviously that on steroids. Now we're up on our topic of the week, and that is, uh, what is this podcast all about? Well, um, basically, it's about incident response, detection and response, active defense, threat hunting, malware discovery, basic malware analysis, all of that in, encompassing NIR, with the exception of what Tyler tends to do mainly and what Dave tends to do as well. So the advanced analysis and the forensics we're not going to cover in this podcast. Now, let's kind of define what IR is because I'm confused what incident response really is. You, you get a sense of that from different uh, organizations and such. I know one in particular, I, they kind of define IR as the process by which you respond to an incident in, in a legal sense. So is it sort of a glorified project management where you have an incident and then you have somebody come in and say, and, and make sure that the guys on the ground are, actually doing things in a legal and um, structured way? Is that what incident response is? And what I'm looking at here is a diagram of incident response. And, and, and I have three bubbles. If you can imagine um, in set theory where you have three circles that are kind of all intersecting each other, they form like a triangle where all three would intersect in a smaller point and then two of them would intersect. Um, 
as well as the other two. And then, so it's like a triangle of three bubbles. One is discovery, which is on top. And we've labeled that one to four hours. Analysis is on the bottom left where it would take basically between four hours and three days. And that would be your advanced analysis of malware or certain binaries. And then on the forensics end, um, we have on the bottom right would take from three days to a week. Um, do you guys agree on that? So I think one of the reasons we want to bring this up is uh, Defer, I think, has gotten very wide in regards to the, to the various areas. In my training, I break it up into basically multiple parts, five parts. Malware discovery and basic analysis is what I tend to teach and train. Then there's the advanced analysis that Tyler does and the reverse engineering. And then there's the stuff on the far right that Dave does, which can encompass everything to the left. Um, I break this up from being an incident responder in, in big events. I dealt with the Chinese in the gaming where uh, stuff to the left takes less time, stuff to the right takes more time. I can do malware discovery and basic analysis far faster than probably Dave can do forensics and get enough artifacts to allow me to take some immediate action, do the triage portion of, of IR or forensics to get things going, to get things blocked, to get things black holed, uh, to get some you know items identified so we can do some hunting. And so there's a breakdown, I think, now within DFER that allows what we do on the left to what Dave does on the right and what Tyler does in the middle, that we all have verticals now within DFER. And so I think the bubbles that uh, we'll have these in the show notes that Brian's referring to with discovery analysis and forensics kind of breaks down into those three pieces. Discovery is what Brian and I do a lot of. Analysis we do some of, and it starts getting more time consuming, and forensics well, as Dave knows, we would farm it out to him as I've contacted him in a couple of cases and, and forward him information. And so that's kind of the logic we're coming from in regards to how we'll cover the podcast. What do you guys think IR is today? I, I think IR is, or the, the incident response is not just the analysis piece. It's It encompasses the entire start to finish of an incident even before the incident happens to, to after you've done all your response um i there's a um an uh, acronym that's thrown out a, a lot uh pick earl which kind of describes the entire incident response process it's uh planning or preparation um identification i think it through my head now it's a sans term uh, dave probably has yeah. this memorized Yep. containment, uh, eradication, remediation, and lessons learned. And um, I, there are different words that some people will use, it, but the, it still goes through the, the entire process where you're, you're, you're planning for the, the incident, you're finding the incident and investigating it, and then you're going through the entire recovery phase, and then you have the lessons learned. And I, I look at it as just this huge circle that kind of circles back. After you have lessons learned, you move right back into planning. Um, so I, I think uh, looking at the the three circles you have here or the three circles that you described uh, is definitely part of the incident response process. I think that it would involve a lot more, though, at least, you know, based off my experience and, and based off of everything that I've done. Yeah, I refer to the pick roll model in my uh, training as well. And uh, what I usually focus the people on in the, in the stuff that we train is is part of this this area of discovery and basic analysis. I'm trying to get as much as I can out of the system as fast as I can. Uh, of course, this preparation ahead of time, you know, what are those things we're looking for? And is the lab set up and all the prep we have to do? 
Uh, do you have a war room where you can put a bunch of sticky notes and start recording information and and all that all that stuff that goes along with the incident response? You got to have a plan. You've got to have playbooks. Um, but in a day to day scenario, um, that's where we'll cover in our podcast. That this podcast will cover on is kind of what we do day to day as a part of that IR task. Uh, we'll have people in. We're, we plan to have Leslie Hack for Pancakes on here to talk uh, more about the process of uh, incident response and the project side of it. And, and people like that. And, of course, we have Dave and you on today. And so, Dave, what do you think on this space? So, it, it honestly, for me, depends on my client. So, obviously, you know, we're outside consultants. So, it's typically, it only bubbles up to us when it's terrible. And because of that, I've seen different companies treat IR in different roles and capacities as they evolve and mature because terrible things keep happening. So, for some of my clients, IR is what happens when the SIM has an alert and they decide to do something about it. For other people, they generalize IR much larger, and it's not just the, the technology assets, but it's any type of incident that could occur from physical to natural disasters to anything else. So, a lot of it depends on the company, the culture, and, and what they've dealt with in the past. But for me, what's interesting about IR is that a lot of times we get focused on uh, commodity malware in IR and people get surprised by the other elements that then come about, which is typically where I get interested in and where we get involved. It's not so much the quantity stuff. It's like you said, you know, it's, it's fairly rapid. You identify it. It's known. You already have other write-ups for it. It's when you have either non-commodity insiders or just plain uh, people, bad actors who are coming in, not necessarily using malware, but actually just not necess- not claiming nation state here, just criminal groups uh, making use of your system. So uh, today, for instance, we had a call from a managed service provider who says two thirds of their systems got taken, got taken over by Bitcoin miners. Ouch. And so two thirds of a, a very large number of systems. Uh, so that wasn't so much about malware uh, or even part of the traditional response process. It was, okay, well, crap, what do we know about this Bitcoin miner? Can we figure out when it got on? We need to do the analysis and then start tracking the wallet, which mining pool it's part of, and, and where the profits were going. Yeah, so now we're getting into the you know who did it and what exactly did they do, right? This is mm-hmm. this is this is more of the uh, the details around the forensics side and defining forensics. Maybe maybe as part of DFER, we should have kind of a forensics definition. Uh, I generally tell people when any any time you're thinking about an employee and they could have action taken in against them or uh, criminal activity where you might prosecute somebody, then you're going to stop and you're going to go down this forensics path. You got chain of evidence and and all the stuff that so goes along with that. The only reason I, the only thing I would add into your list there is if there is a notification event possible. Yes, right, exactly. If there's potential that we're going to have to notify somebody that, uh oh, we lost your data. Yeah, I would totally yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, the second notification comes in, the lawyers come in, and then typically that's when things get messy. Yeah, I mean it's totally different how we would handle malware, which Brian and I deal a lot with that. Um, mm-hmm. But if I have RDP open in the internet and I RDP in your environment and I start crawling around and I start plopping Bitcoin JavaScript everywhere, you're not going to quite treat that like malware discovery. This is a little different process, a little different playbook you're going to have to follow. Exactly. All right. How about uh, how about analysis, uh, Tyler? W- how do you define your analysis space? So I do basic analysis. I get about twelve tools that I try to lock people in. I, I kind of say, become masters of this first before you go take Tyler's class. So when the fire hose gets opened up a little more in Tyler's class, and then you can go to take a SANS class after that, and it opens up really wide when they spend three days talking about tools, that you're, you're, you're really good at one area first before you move on to the other area. How do you define analysis in regards to the deeper space 
that you play in or as Defer and Hole, when do you stop? I always tell people, try to get it down to an hour. Try to get a refined process down to an hour that you can repeat over and over and over again very quickly. Windows for Mac, for Nix, etc. And then in some cases, you never do it in an hour. You may take two or three if you're dealing with a large Unix system or, or whatnot. What should they focus on or what? how do you define where you start and end? Do you have two parts to your basic analysis and advanced analysis or three parts with reverse engineering? How do you define that? I, it's a good question. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to your experience. And obviously each case is going to be different, but um, when, when I go in and I'm teaching a class, one of the slides that I always have in there is you want to focus your analysis. You, you don't want to just go in gung ho uh, and say, I'm just going to analyze everything and find everything because you're going to be there for the next two weeks and you're still not going to find everything. Um, have I, I always try to tell um, my students and the people that I'm, I'm working with to have uh, questions in mind that they want to answer. So <clears throat> to go back to the uh, the Emotet example that you we uh, you talked about earlier, you know, if if you had that and you wanted to analyze it, and let, let's you know even just go into that that school district, you know what were they trying to figure out uh, or what would I have been trying to figure out in that? It would have been, you know, how do we detect this? Uh, so, you know, how is it reaching out to any websites? You know, is it reaching out to any command and control servers that we can then look on the network to see who else is reaching out to those command and control servers? Uh, how is it maintaining persistence? You know, what registry entries is it dropping? Uh, what files is it dropping? So that we can then write a script to remove it. Uh, is it setting any else that we can use to identify it like a mutex or uh, some weird file or so something else like that um, you know having those questions in mind are, are going to allow you to focus your analysis and determine when you're going to stop because once you get those answered uh, then you can stop and then move on to the next phase and if if they bring up more questions then you can you know you can still move on to those additional questions but you'll at least have that initial set of data you'll at least have that initial set of data that you can go in and and, and look at and, and hand off to show that you are making progress um, i think it comes uh, the same thing will happen if you're not analyzing malware let's say you have a system that's potentially compromised all right well you know you're gonna have some questions in mind is there anything uh persistent on there that shouldn't be you know is there a service starting that that shouldn't be is there something in the user's run key uh, are there any executables in temp directories that shouldn't be there, and so on? And so, once once you have these initial questions, um, that's uh, and you get those answered. That's where I see the analysis stopping. Um, but you know, like I said, the more experience you get, the more you know you'll be able to know when you have to go a little bit farther and when you can just stop. Your term phases fits in here because I talk about um, our discovering basic analysis as an entry phase, right? I want to get all this done very quickly. We generally can throw a piece of malware in a box, detonate it, and we have our answers of the IP addresses. Why, why is that important to me? Because I want to put that in my log management solution uh, because we have the firewall logs all in log management. So therefore, if anybody else visited any of the IPs that this malware used, we would be able to identify, hey, you know, that box over there, I don't know who owns it yet, but that, that IP address has the same, you know, communication going on, right? So I need the IP address for sure. And then knowing directories and files and auto runs and things like that allow me to quickly go to that box and say, look here, here, and here, and here, and say, okay, I know this box has the same thing or something similar. 
and I can take whatever cleanup action or know that at least that's done, right? That's my phase one, malware discovery, basic analysis. I, I've done, you know, the, the SIG checks and things like that. And I know, I know basically this is what's infecting the box. Um, I can make the decision at that point to then go into more advanced analysis, uh, do the word, uh, take the word doc and, and do the whole analysis like you mentioned in your tool um, that you mentioned in the tools, tools worthy section. And then, or you isolate the box and you then set it aside and you call Dave and say, I need a forensics analysis on this. I look at the, the second phase being more advanced analysis and even reverse engineering where uh, when I dealt with the Chinese uh, and dealt with that, obviously, you know, this is custom made malware, right? Unique for one company. Uh, when they attack you, uh, it's even got your company name and the stuff. So, you know, it's very unique to you. And you say, all right, how much time do I want to spend on this? When you get into that and, you know, you're talking about advanced malware, that's unique to one company, you spend a lot of time in advanced analysis and doing you know, reverse engineering on it. Where companies now, uh, IR firms, uh, SecureWorks and Manions of the World and others, you can actually use your hours when you have them on retainer for an IR gig towards the end of the year or as a part of the year, use those hours and send them payloads you want them to reverse. So you don't have to have the staff. You potentially can farm that phase out to a possible IR firm. Uh, hint something maybe that North Carolina school might want to do. Um, and then the third part is forensics. Uh, we have a policy where we're at. If we have to do forensics and we think we're going to go down that path, uh, we would farm it out to GC Partners. So that's our process, right? So that phase is handed off to somebody in forensics. Um, that's done for, I think, multiple reasons from the different phases is because I can't staff all those people for the occasional times I might need those services, uh, bigger the companies, the more you do it, then yeah, you can you can have more staff and you'll have dedicated people. Uh, but smaller firms might consider f farming out these phases to, to firms, which is um, how we look at, at doing it. Um, and these would all be playbooks, right? So Tyler, your playbook would be different than my playbook, which would be a lot different than than uh, Dave's play manual. Uh, it'd be pretty intense doing the full forensics disk imaging and all that. What lessons do you two want to tell people on the uh, preparation, the P and the pick roll model? Give somebody a hint on what they should prepare for first and foremost. Obviously have an incident response plan and, and write that, but uh, what kind of things do you see that probably most people don't do a good job preparing on? Um, well, I mean, the, the first thing that I'll say is the, the preparation never ends. Um, after every incident, you're going to be preparing again, uh, and you're going to be taking those lessons and kind of looping them back in to figure out how how things work. Um, on it, honestly, the the biggest thing that that I see issues with um, is actually the boring stuff um, that that nobody really wants to think. It's not it's not the cool fun stuff. It's uh, making sure that you have policies in place so that you can go and grab a machine if you need to, or that you do have the authority to shut a system down if, if need be. Um, you know, making sure that you have the, the right, the, enough disk space so that if you have to take uh, a dozen images of one terabyte systems that you have, you know, that space in, in a sand somewhere to, to do this. And so you're not scrambling at the last minute. I mean, those are, those are the big things, the little details that, you know, aren't, aren't the sexy things that people want to do. They're not the memory analysis or the malware analysis or the, or the disk analysis. It's all those little things that, that nobody wants to do. And, you know, the, the templates for writing your reports and for keeping track of information during an incident and all that boring stuff that those are the things that I think are the most important that pe a lot of people forget, uh, to prepare for.
Yeah, policy. So when I know when I'm going to use Dave, when someone says I want to investigate an employee, whoa, 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 I don't want retaliation here. Hey, Dave, I got a gig for you. <laughs> so that is a big piece of the preparation, right? The paperwork, the dot, the I's, cross the T's, the, le- the legalese. And you definitely can do that ahead of time. What about you, Dave? You got a good prep item that you see people? Uh, uh, I do. <laughs> I do. And so typically when I'm working with a client and they're trying to either prepare or get better long term, it's kind of a four-pointed list. And is this a, for me, is an order of importance. So uh, number one is most important is depending upon the size of the network, whether it's a single site or global, is who to contact at each one of the sites that it would actually be able to provide access either to the system or the logs or the networks or the firewalls that actually will have uh, the data that you need to start tracking this thing down. Uh, number two is just simply going to be the word NetFlow. NetFlow, NetFlow, NetFlow. Where is it? Who has access to it? How can you query it? Where can you get more of it? How's it being stored? <laughs> Everything you can to get more NetFlow. Uh, then after that, it's going to be these, you know, are they have logging centralized and where can you get access to it? And how can you measure it? And then for me, if you've managed to get those three things accomplished, you can start looking at instrumentation. And you can use a lot of different acronyms from different vendors for that. But if you have nothing and no budget and you've solved the other three, um, you should probably be aware that there's two projects out of Google that could be getting you on board and getting visibility today, uh, one of which on the threat hunting end, which is the Google rapid response that I think a lot of people are aware of, but at the other on kind of the open source carbon black end is a tool called Lima Charlie that's out of Google security department, which is this amazing state and non-state uh, detection system that can actually uh, you can run locally in a docker or up in the cloud to start actually pulling in these events as they trigger across your systems. Uh, those are good. That's a good list. I would definitely agree with a lot of those. And one of the things I've done with PowerShell scripts and uh, launching the stuff that Word calls out to PowerShell that goes out to the net, downloads its payload to do its uh, uh, dropper and all that execution, is I take some of these, I'll, I'll genericize them so they don't actually do anything and I'll move it and execute that actual call on my desktop so that I trigger the alert that I've created because obviously I'm, I'm very concerned about PowerShell usage in our environment or any environment. Everybody should be concerned about PowerShell execution to see if I can pick out certain kinds of things. And that preparation is, is constant, right? I go to I go to a, a SANS summit or I'll go to DerbyCon or I'll go to uh, whatever con of the month I'm at and I'll listen to one of the Manion guys on their latest and greatest thing, or Daniel on, on his obfuscation stuff, and I will go back and I will prepare for that hitting us. And um, I, I constantly testing that kind of loop of preparedness and detection, right? Sometimes we refer to this as active defense, where that prep means uh, if somebody does land in our environment, like let's say we hire a pen tester and he goes crazy with PowerShell, that I'll pick up on him phoning out to a pen tester website and downloading something, or I'll, I'll pick up on him using huge chunks of base 64 code in a PowerShell script or using a lot of ticks doing obfuscation uh, scenarios. And then I'm constantly testing and doing this evaluation and, and detection and preparation um, as a part of that loop. Um, and so that, that is a good one because we, we are constantly doing that. Some people, uh, I think break brought up one time saying, Oh yeah, Tuning your sim is so much fun, and he was being facetious. And it's like, actually, it is, because when you detect something that you've been working on for a while, and you start throwing what you're actually receiving on a day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month basis, 
and you start throwing that at these things you've created in your sim and you're getting positive triggers. Uh, I know one of my big base 64 triggers was getting thrown by Foxit reader and like, well, I just have to filter that out. And once I did, I'm like, okay, let's throw that at it. Let's throw that at it. And it's, it's pretty impressive. We had this rollout of a new solution that used PowerShell and it threw a whole bunch of alerts. It did exactly what I designed it to do. So tuning the sim was a huge piece of preparation and, and was part of what I consider to be active defense where you're constantly doing this tune, tweak, uh, learn, tune, tweak, learn, waiting for that next attack. How do you guys define active defense? What do you think active defense is, Brian? Well, active defense, I think, is, well, a lot of people define it as hacking back. I don't. I think it's a clever ways to thwart an attacker, like uh, zip bombs or ever directories that directory structure that never ends it's like an infinite directory structure things like that so when they try to spider um, for example a website it's never going to end that's what i consider active defense like honeypot kind of stuff or honey accounts or honey files or things like yeah that. some to thwart an attacker and give yourself more time create noise right allow the defenders to respond what about uh, tyler what do you think active defenses uh honestly i'm i'm not sure like, i mean like like brian said um I, I i've heard lots of different definitions for it um i've never really heard one that i like i i think it i, I know traditionally it, it is you know the the hacking back and and doing things like like the zip bombs and, and things like that I, i've never been a big fan of that um because it, i i always feel that it opens up too many cans of worms on your own end honestly i i don't know I, i'll be honest with you I, I i really don't have a good definition for it all right that's fair the vendor is it vendor speak you know vendors used to use this term an awful lot yeah it, it probably is i mean the the best thing that i i can think of is um oh man i can't even remember the name of the tool now but there uh, used to be a a tool that one of the david you may you may know who, who was that put it out there but a number of years ago one of the uh, SANS incident handlers put out a tool that would um, wait for incoming scans. Uh, I think that it was specifically made for SMB scans, but you can you, know, you could change it. And it would just use the, um, uh, the way that uh, TCP IP worked. Uh, it would respond back, but it would respond really slowly. And it would just basically slow their scans down to a crawl. And they ended up having to take it down because of a law that came out. Um, but that, to, but to me that that would be active defense is using the um, the attacker's tools against them to slow them down or make their their data non-existent. It's, it's almost like the um, uh, the whole thing that you know you don't want to um, on the defense side of you don't want to uh, or you want to make your network only a little bit harder than your neighbor's network to get into because then the attackers will go after your neighbor's network because it's easier. Um, you know, if you can slow down the attacker traffic and things like that, then, you know, they're going to hopefully abandon looking at you and then go off to somewhere else. Hopefully that would be the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, go, go pick on somebody else, please. How about you, Dave? Do you uh, have a, have a description for active defense or does SANS have something that they have a nice, <laughs> nice definition for? So I know SANS does have a new class out actually for active defense, uh, but for me, there's kind of two definitions. There's the classical vendor definition on, of active defense, which is much more around the uh, 
IPS devices that are going out there putting up fake services and hosts and, and basically when people respond to them, then triggering events to occur or detections or, or, or additional kind of responses. But uh, what I'm seeing, and I'm not going to name names, but I'm seeing one of my smarter and larger customers doing now is that their new version of, uh, of act events is what you would classically call kind of counterintelligence where they're actually setting up fake networks and when they see certain traffic they're basically rerouting the attackers and, and natting them uh, into basically a fake net uh, which mirrors their real network to actually try to find out either what they're doing or to feed them bad information to lead them down either the wrong path or if it's for competitive intelligence to feed them bad data to make them make bad decisions Ooh, I like that idea. All right, let's talk a little bit about threat hunting. This is kind of a new term in, in our DFER area where threat hunting is now becoming a full-time job for uh, individuals in the industry. And uh, we know some of the bigger companies do quite a bit of this. Um, so what's your take on threat hunting? Where do hunters fit into all this? I mean, I think that threat hunting is has become an integral part of the uh, incident response, the, the entire DFER process. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, preparation and identification, the first two parts of that, that pickerel. Um, I think it fits in right in there because, you know, you have your traditional ways to detect attacks uh, through, log and, through logs, through antivirus, through NIDs and IPS, and uh, even now with the uh, EDR type systems. And in order to, and the attackers are human, or most of the attackers are, are human. And so they're going to change and they're going to modify their tactics. And so you, you can't just have a automated system looking for signatures. You need to have a human on the other end who can think as well and say, all right, well, if, if I was an attacker and I wanted to laterally move within the network, uh, how could I do it? What, what are the top five ways that I could do it? And then use that and figure out, all right, well, based off of that, what logs do I want to look for? What evidence do I want to see of that? Without that, you're, the defenders, if you're not doing that or don't have some aspect of that going on, I think you're in a losing battle. So to just kind of circle back around to, to your original question, uh, I, I think you know threat hunting is has absolutely become a integral part of the whole defer and incident response process. Yeah, I I took I take a hunting even to the extreme of where if you bring in a pen tester, uh, one of your jobs as a defender, the blue teamer side, is to hunt to find out what the pen tester did. You know, if you hire him for a wireless assessment or uh, web-based stuff, is go hunting to figure out what did they trip, what what did they trip that I did not detect, what can I tweak so that next time they do this next year, if I hire the same firm or a different firm, can I potentially catch them? Right, go hunt for things that I can improve the security defenses, but also try to set up items that can detect things in general, like, hey, I've got the solution that I can check and whitelist out all the run keys on my servers. Maybe I can flip this analysis to just sit there and go off every hour if there's any changes to any run key in HK users, HK local machine or whatever, um, and I can trip people on that, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna use these tools. Maybe I take the, I either know the limitations of a vendor tool, or I take the tool and I exploit that tool into doing things it probably wasn't initially intended to or doing a lot more with it uh, than it was intended to so that I can use it to hunt. And we know, obviously, in the, in the Google Gur case and, and Mozilla Investigator and, and Facebook's tool that that's kind of what they design these tools, right? To queer the system. Hey, do you have a file in this location uh, of this, these properties, yes or no, right? To be able to 
to say, I found one over here. Does anybody else have this condition? Uh, I have this large ridge key in this key structure. Does anybody else have a large key in this key structure that might have been indicating a, a hidden binary in the registry or something? So uh, I think hunting uh, kind of is built into your defense nowadays. Um, I think some of the stuff we do in our, in our malware discovery and analysis, we can feed into hunting, and it works really well. Uh, I'm sure artifacts that Dave would bring in and say, hey, we found all these things. And, and matter of fact, I was on the Forensics Lone Show one time and Dave was showing me some, some shrimp stuff and I stopped him. I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you know, um, I, I can totally see using this. And, and Brian and I actually integrated that in LogMD and found a case where we worked uh, with a contractor and found where um, that whole mentality allowed us to then know exactly how long uh, that that contractor's machine was infected so we we understood how, how long the uh, event was going on and so hunting is kind of this ongoing constantly looking for things from the bad guys and or artifacts and or behaviors um, and also finding what your pen testers did I, I think there's probably not enough of that going on I think uh, we hear about the purple teaming from our, our pen tester vendors trying to uh, improve their service offerings but I think uh, blue teamers, the defenders of the networks, the customers, need to hunt what their pen testers do as part of uh, threat hunting. At a minimum, start there if you're having regular pen tests done. What about you, Dave? Coming from the forensic side, this is probably uh, a little different. You're hunting the entire remnants of everything that happened on the box in a timeline. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy that threat hunting is becoming a thing. Does it mean that people are no longer being passive about waiting for a similar to go off and then putting their head in the sand if it doesn't <laughs> assuming that everything is fine so i i'm i'm happy even if i don't agree with everyone's definitions of how they do things or why they do things I, i'm just happy they're doing it and they're looking um so I, I think it really depends on the maturity of your instrumentation how you can hunt i mean i think at a minimum uh just getting a threat intel feed into the tool of your choice to start looking for the basic indicators is great to actually start proactively looking for this stuff. And then when you're ready to move up, you can start integrating. I don't know if you've seen uh, the uh, amazing document that came out of the Japan cert where they actually started tracking all of the major artifacts left over from the most popular lateral movement tools. And they actually turned that into a set of signatures that you could start looking for in your hunts. And then above that, you have, you know, what Microsoft has done, and I don't know if, if you've heard about this, but Microsoft's red team runs year-round, and their blue team hunts them year-round. And so they're always looking for a red team they know is present, and then they happen to stumble over real attacks in the process because they're looking for all these new and novel ways that their red teams are getting in. Um, and then for me, kind of like where it gets, you know, if, you, if you've achieved all these things and you're doing all these things and kind of the next level and, and, and where we're seeing things going is, is doing more advanced hunting where we're actually starting to compare uh, what's in memory to what the operating system's showing and actually doing diffs of that in real time to find out what's being hidden from us and we're currently doing that with GUR and I think a lot of other people should be kind of looking into that if you've achieved the other levels in your maturity cycle and you're ready to kind of take things to the next step. So yeah there, there is definitely a maturity level in defer, right? You got to start to the left, work your way to the right, become a forensic guru. Try. I, I think a lot of people try to take too much on when they're learning this space and it overwhelms them because now there's so much to do. I want to be a malware discovery, basic, advanced analysis, reverse engineering, forensics guru. Uh, jack of all trades, master of none. It's, it's kind of my warning to people. Pick what you want to be good at and, and dig deep because it's surprisingly a very, very deep 
subject these days. Yeah, and I, I was talking to one of my coworkers the other day about this. I I don't know if if I was just starting out now, I don't know if I'd want to get into the space because it's so huge. I mean, wh- I've been doing security for almost 20 years now and you know, when I started, the only way you could get into this was if you just happened to stumble upon a private company that that had a security group, which was very rare, or you worked for the government. Um, now, you know, I mean, I just look over at my bookshelf and I've got three dozen different books on security uh, that are published in, you know, that you walk down to uh, your local bookstore and get been on a huge variety of subjects. Um, I with so much being out there, it's, I mean, it's overwhelming to me and I've been in the space for a while. Uh, I can't imagine what people who are just coming in are, are, are feeling that, you know, the, the overwhelming of looking at everything, but I think your advice is, is perfect and, and spot on that, you know, focus on one area. And when you feel good enough about that, you know, start looking at other areas because eventually it'll all come to you. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap this up, right? Because that's the idea here. Uh, Defer has gotten very wide, very deep, and uh, we are going to focus on this podcast on the left side, the things that take the least amount of time. We're going to help people that are probably getting into it, people that want to get better at the first part of it before they graduate, before they consider themselves really good at at malware discovery, basic analysis, to move on to a class for Tyler's. In my training, that's exactly what I do. I say, you take my two classes, my two-day malware discovery, and then my log analysis classes, and then you go take Tyler's advanced analysis and, and reverse engineering stuff, and then you're going to go take SAN certifications with Dave and forensic space. Um, but master those. Don't try to run down this path. And so our, our podcast is going to focus on the left side, the things that you can do in an hour or two, the things that get you started Um, the things that will lead you to become uh, an advanced analysis or reversing expert. And then, of course, you're going to listen to the Forensics Lunch because if you're a forensics guy, that's what you're going to listen to. And that's kind of the focus of what we're going to do here. I can't thank you guys enough for for helping us to find that and talking about the subject and and helping us scope out what we're going to do. And you guys are definitely well-respected in this space. Uh, If you haven't taken Tyler's training, you know, Indianapolis, when is that training? What, What month? How cold uh, it will is it be? the end of May. End of May. Uh, oh, it won't be too bad. It'll be pretty. And then, of course, DerbyCon in September. I'm sure we'll be fighting over that submission again, which you keep beating <laughs> me out for. Damn it. Yeah, that's in... in uh, you can find Dave online. Well, I guess you have to go to Australia or some other foreign beautiful place to get Dave's training. So with that, we're going to wrap this up. Um, I know uh, Brian's having some audio issues uh, out there in the country. Yep. And, uh, um, but hey... we. We'd love to plug your stuff some more, so be sure to, to look up Tyler's plural site, Tyler Hudak's plural site stuff. There will be show notes. They will be at bdirpodcast.com, which is going to be a page on the LogMD site, and we'll have the show notes and some of the links that uh, we talked about today, so you guys can actually go click on those and learn on the recommendations and, and stuff that we talked about. Again, Dave Cowan, you can find him at gcg-cpartners.com. And, of course, SANS training all over the place and, and various cons. You'll be in Austin at the DFER Summit, hopefully. That's the plan. That's the plan. So he'll be here in our hometown, and hopefully we'll uh, get scheduled to go to that this year and, and hang out with him a little bit. But he'll be busy doing the whole, you know, putting on the thing and hurting the cats in and out of the room and, and whatnot. Any other last thoughts you guys want to share before we uh, wrap it up? I just to say thank you for uh, you know having me on your maiden podcast or your maiden episode of the podcast 
Uh, it was truly an honor to be asked, especially with, you know, such uh, a great uh, other person on here, uh, such as David, who's a legend in the field. It's, it's quite an honor to be with all you guys. Yeah, we thought this would be a good one to cover the space, and we have the left <laughs> all the way to the right covered in, <laughs> in, the, in Brian and myself. Uh, make it uh, three. We're probably equal to you two. Um, but we wanted to make sure that uh, we gave all that all that uh, insight for people so they can make good decisions and, and at least understand that we're gonna we're gonna cover our stuff to the to the left. We will uh, obviously cover tools and have people on that will talk about the advanced area and reversing. I'm sure in uh, forensics, I'm, who knows there may be a release that Dave wants to come share with us at one point in time in the future. But that's that's what you'll learn here, and and we'll cover the same kind of flow. We'll talk about some newsworthy items. We're not reading the news. Uh, but we will uh, talk about some things we think are interesting and, and things to consider and, and maybe you should think about. Uh, there's lots of podcasts that talk about the news, so we don't want to regurgitate that. Um, and then hopefully some sites and, and tools that uh, can help you on your career path to learning and advancing in our defer area. So thanks, uh, everybody, for uh, for participating. I got my last sound bite in there, so I think we're good. And... Uh, We'll talk to you soon, and, and thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Bye, guys. Thank you. All right, thanks. Cheers. Cheers.